Basel III endgame will make it harder for consumers to buy a house or a car. It'll hurt the small businesses that rely on loans to grow, and it'll reduce savings for people with money in pension funds. Regulators propose capital requirements would take a toll on families, seniors, farmers, and small businesses. Washington, scrap Basel III endgame and start over. On Tuesday night, Representative Mike Turner, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, showed his colleague, Representative Jim Himes, the ranking Democrat on that committee, a short statement that he wanted to put out. Meeting behind closed doors, the committee had just voted to allow all House members access to a secret report that Turner was especially alarmed about. And now, Turner wanted the public to know about what his proposed statement called a serious national security threat. I am requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration, and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat, Turner's statement said. Himes read it and told him it was a bad idea. So I looked at this statement and I said, Mike, I think I disagree with you on this point because if you if this statement goes out, you know, you're going to spend I think I said you're going to spend the next four weeks talking to reporters. But on Wednesday morning, Turner released it and all hell broke loose. Well, basic human psychology 101, fewer facts and more mystery is more scary. I'm Ryan Lizza and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Within hours, the cryptic threat was identified by reporters citing anonymous sources as a Russian anti-satellite weapon. All of this was taking place in the middle of another legislative crisis that the House Intelligence Committee is at the center of. The Foreign Intelligence Gathering Program, known as Section 702, expires in April. According to the Biden administration, renewing the program is, quote, perhaps the single most consequential national security decision that this Congress will make. A bipartisan group of privacy advocates in the House has proposed reforms to Section 702 that Turner, Himes, and Biden's top national security officials all say will cripple the program. These two Intelligence Committee stories collided in spectacular fashion on Wednesday. In the morning, Turner released his statement. In the afternoon, Biden officials, including Jake Sullivan, the president's national security advisor, met with House Democrats in the Intelligence Committee's secure offices in the basement of the Capitol to argue against the proposed changes to 702. Then, while they were all in that meeting, Speaker Mike Johnson pulled the plug on a plan to bring the 702 legislation to the floor this week. Naturally, some observers couldn't help but wonder whether the two issues were related. Did Turner hype this new Russian threat, which reportedly was detected with the help of intelligence gathered under Section 702, as a way of breaking the impasse over the bill? To help answer that question, and everything else you might want to know about Russian space weapons, Section 702 reforms, and to take us behind the scenes of a very strange week for a committee that is not used to this much attention, I sat down with Himes in his office in Rayburn. Pleasure to be with you. I don't think you broke any uh, classification rules. We'll we'll, we'll see if I get dragged out in handcuffs next week. (laughs) One note about our conversation We talked on Thursday morning before the White House confirmed that the Turner statement was indeed about Russian anti-satellite technology. So you'll notice Himes being careful not to spill the beans on that. Just 
What happened on Wednesday? Tell us the sort of backstory from your perspective of- What an exciting day, uh, <laughs> intelligence, right? I mean, you know, third attempt to get uh, 702 on the floor, which is actually really important that we get that done in whatever form we get it done. And the form matters because yeah. um, it's just kind of our premier collection tool. And, you know, I suspected there was some chance that the Republicans would have the rules problem that they've had on every other thing they've tried to bring to the floor. But boom, it happened. Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, the chairman releases his uh, statement in Dear Colleague, which, yes, had the effect of lighting the world on fire. And I was yeah. on my way to a lunch and Where I couldn't were you when it pick up. Well, um, I, you know, I think the press got uh, uh, word of what was going on, uh, you know, in the late morning. So, you know, I'm in a lunch and my phone is literally bouncing across the uh, the, the table. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... it's, it's um, he didn't give you a heads up that he was going to... Well, so... The way this played out was we had a business meeting to make an intelligence product available to the broader Congress. Now, often when we do that, it is a particular member request, meaning a, me a member request to see. And, and we've always shown great deference to each other. In other words, unless there's a really obvious reason to say no, we say yes. Um, and so, yeah. you know, what was pretty routine, um, let's make this product available to members of Congress. That happened on Tuesday, right? There was uh, a, correct. There was a committee vote on that. Correct. Right, Because everyone's trying to, usually when that happens, there's just, just sort of one word description of what's being voted on behind closed doors. So everyone was trying to figure out at that point. Do I have that right? Yeah. What? So again, these are pretty routine things. Yeah. Um, and uh, making a product available to the whole Congress is slightly different than just to one individual member. But by the way, this particular product was out there for lots of committees to review. And in fact, the relevant committees, you know, uh, Hask members had been briefed on this particular issue. Uh, my understanding is that it is available to foreign affairs. So in any event, can, we, I just, can you just explain when you say this this product? Just generally, what does that mean? It's a it's a a, 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 a one pager on you know on this this issue. It's like, an what intelligence is it? report. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get too specific here, but in this case, there were a couple of uh, intelligence reports on a, a potential threat that would that the intelligence committee had been tracking. Uh, the intelligence community, I should say, had been tracking for some time, and like these things tend to be over time, you get different levels of certainty around what something is or is not. And so this is, again, this wasn't a shocker or a surprise. And, you know, I, I make that point because, of course, I was getting phone calls at lunchtime about whether people needed to, you know, head for the hills of West Virginia. But um, yeah, it was a, a specific intelligence product, which I learned in retrospect is largely available to uh, Hask and to foreign affairs anyway. Okay. So- Anyway, it's all very routine. Um, and then the chairman showed me a statement that he wanted to make about it uh, in the meeting. And I read the Tuesday statement. meeting. Uh, this was at the Tuesday meeting. Okay. And um, so I looked at this statement and I said, Mike, I think I disagree with you on this point because if you, if this statement goes out, you know, you're going to spend, I think I said, you're going to spend the next four weeks talking to reporters. So I objected to that informally. Um, but, uh, um, you know, the committee approved the, uh, the, the access, um, and all was quiet until the dear colleague, uh, from Chairman Turner and then the tweet from, uh, from the chair went out. And that's the when the next day on Wednesday, the next day. Yeah. That's when all hell broke loose. <laughs> What's the nature of the disagreement between you and him, uh, on this? Well, it was really over whether we should publicize this. Well, but it seems like he you're, you're saying 
he described this almost as an imminent threat. It does, it seems like you were disagreeing a little bit um, in the characterization of um, the nature or imminence of, of of this threat. Well, again, without getting too specific about the intelligence, yeah. um, this is absolutely not. And I made this case on about the seventh phone call in ten minutes yesterday. This is absolutely not an immediate or imminent threat. This is a threat that the intelligence community has been tracking for some time. Okay. And like so much of what we deal with, you know, you, you get an inkling of a threat and over a period of weeks, months, depending on what it is, if it's not imminent, you know, the executive thinks about the appropriate response and the way to deal with it, which I think that they have been doing. In fact, I know they have been doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, my thinking was first and foremost, let's make sure. I mean, I think people legitimately thought, oh my God, you know, we're, we're, we're a day from the apocalypse right. because I the mean, language. That's what it made it sound like. Yeah, the yeah. language in the Dear Colleague, which I think used the adjective destabilizing. Now, destabilizing doesn't have a time indicator on it. Is, right. is this destabilizing 10 years from now? Maybe it, maybe it is. Is it destabilizing today? No. Um, and then, you know, I think the word urgent was used. There were just adjectives around uh, a release. I don't, well, I never. Also, just the mystery. Just, it was so cryptic, right? I mean, it's like. Well, basic it, human it, it, psychology 101 yeah. fewer facts and more mystery is more scary. More facts and yeah. less mystery is less scary. So, of course, yeah. what happened was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and that's why, and again, in the meeting, I objected to, you know, communicating this. Do you think um, that he did this to light a fire under A702 or B? the supplemental in the house, which obviously both of those are having a little bit of trouble? So this is a question for him to answer, but I will speculate because I know the chairman pretty well. Um, and the chairman and I have a very strong relationship and we share with each other yeah. um, a lot. So my opinion is, because I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there that this was somehow magically timed to in a matter of well, three hours, You don't have to be a conspiracy the theorist to believe <laughs> that, you know, there's a there might be a, a motivation. And well, it's just, it's just not very logical. So I know that there's a theory running around that he did this to uh, um, sort of make it more urgent to pass 702. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. People are pretty or Ukraine aid. Or you, that's the other one I was going to mention. Yeah. Or Ukraine aid. So it's a, that would be a pretty indirect way of doing that, so right? So got everyone's attention. We're all talking about uh, 702 in Ukraine all, in, in, uh, all of a sudden. Yeah, so we were, ta you, we're if, talking about Ukraine, If what you're really trying to do yeah. is to – I mean, let's, let's talk about 702 for a second. Yeah. The, the, you know, we had a reasonably good base bill. I agree with Jim Jordan, which I've never done before, his characterization in front of the rules. The base bill was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and the conflict over 702 was do we include a probable cause warrant? Um, there were a couple other things too, but that was the big conflict, right? That's right. where Jerry Nadler and I were on opposite sides and, you know, Mike Turner and Jim Jordan are on opposite sides. Yeah. Saying in the most sort of hazy way possible that Russia is a threat is hardly a way to address the fundamental question of a disagreement on a probable cause warrant. So, yeah. so based on who I know Mike Turner is, uh, I think he um, had been very concerned about this. I think that he believed that the administration or elements of the administration weren't focused enough on this particular issue. And I think that was his motivation. So I really don't think Fair. it was three-dimensional chess around the Ukraine supplemental or around 702. And when he showed you the statement, he didn't say, hey, I'm going to put this out because it'll finally get our bill passed. He, he absolutely did not. No. In fact, he didn't tell me why. 
guy. And again, I was enormously concerned with putting out a statement. You know, I mean, it's it's unusual yeah. enough to give all members of Congress access, but then to publicize it and then to publicize it with adjectives like disturbing or destabilizing or whatever the language was that, you know, it wasn't hard to see what was coming. You and Turner have uh, done a good job of depoliticizing that committee. Um, do you see this as a sort of breach of your efforts there? Um, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I mean, again, I think that the communication side of this, the tweet and the dear colleague, led to a great deal of confusion. I would not have done it that way. I told him in the business meeting that I suspected that what occurred was going to occur. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, it's our job to be uh, bipartisan and to keep partisanship out of the intelligence committee, not to always agree. Got it. Okay. All right. And, and, well, and I should say, again, I would have handled this differently, but – you know, Mike Turner has forgotten more about certain topics around nuclear strategy and everything else than I will ever know. So, you know, again, I would have handled this differently, but he is a very serious professional uh, when it comes to U.S. national security. So I don't, that's another reason why I don't think he was playing games. Again, I'm sorry that the communication was handled that it was. I yeah. would not have either approved or been, you know, done that, but uh, he's a serious national security pr uh, professional. I don't think he was playing games. Given all the reporting that's out there today about this, what can you tell us now um, that perhaps you couldn't say yesterday about the nature of this intelligence product and what everyone's concerned about here? Yeah, um, the answer to that is not much. Um, you know, intelligence is a funny thing, right? You never have perfect information, so it's an it's a it's a particular threat that we need more information on, and that we need to craft a response. And the problem with what occurred is not just the threat to sources and methods, because anytime intelligence gets out there, there's a threat to sources and methods. Your, your adversaries now know what you know. And the first question they ask is, how did they know that? And that puts, you know, people and methods at risk. You have a whole bunch of options on how to respond to something like this. And when it's out there, you, you know, you've constrained your options because your adversary could shut it down, could hide it better. So anyway, I can't get into the specifics of yeah. what it is, but I, I, I'm pretty adamant that people understand what it's not, which is an imminent threat to our country or to their lives or livelihoods. Okay. All right. Putting that aside, let's talk about uh, the weaponization of space by Russia. How much has Russia militarized space already? I'm happy to answer the question on Russia, but it's not just Russia, right? Uh, it is uh, very much the Chinese, you know, uh, there's some pretty high tech stuff, uh, you know, exquisite satellites that can collect, you know, not just pictures, but, you know, electromagnetic radiation, you know, in some senses, that's the, the militarization of space. They could, now, did you say that, uh, electromagnetic radiation to be used as a weapon? Uh, well, theoretically, to like the take out theoretically, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as you might imagine, and I can't be too specific here, but yeah. as you might imagine, countries with good technical capability are thinking both about how you might mess with other people's satellites, yeah. and you know, not a lot of things on that list. You could, you know, make something moving really fast hit them. You could make an explosion. Maybe you could concentrate energy in some form. So there's yeah. a lot of thinking going on around that, and a lot of experimentation going on around that. What's up there too. now? 
I'm yeah. not going to try to dodge your question. I'll come yeah. back to that. But one of the interesting things about what's up there is that, man, that is the one thing that is done absolutely in plain sight. You can't hide anything. In fact, not only is it in plain sight, but it is perfectly predictable, right? Because stuff up there is moving around purely as a mathematical result of physics, which we don't get to play with. So we can track everything. So you can track everything. now, And, and you, you can know, literally – and you we or can we literally like with the telescope like or sure. other, other with devices the telescope. or absolutely yeah. no i mean so we can see things very with clearly. the telescope you might buy at walmart you can see these things and you can predict when they're coming over in fact there's apps that'll tell you when satellites are going by now can you see a tiny little thing on the side of a satellite probably not you know can you see something on the back of a satellite probably not so th this is the kind of thinking that these people who think about this stuff are doing and you know so you might imagine again you don't have to be too much of a you know a strategist to say well what if you could move a satellite around you know that would be pretty cool because now it's less predictable it's less identifiable you know so there's a that's a that's a sort of esoteric and very specific uh practice but one thing is true that everything up there is subject to very predictable laws of physics right so it's visible we know when it's coming over you know what you see in the movies about you know terrorists who are smart like hiding their activities when they know something's going by you know or maybe going by that that as you might imagine can can easily happen in the real world so you know militarization means a lot of things uh one uh, can we protect our stuff up there? We got a lot of valuable stuff up there, as do, by the way, the Chinese and pretty much, you know, 12 other, 13, 14 other countries. Can we shoot other stuff, you know, people's stuff down there? Well, if you can launch an intercontinental ballistic missile, you, you could probably shoot down the satellite. And, you know, there's a lot of people doing a lot of thinking about that. Oh, and then there's the third question I would say, which is what about weapons up there, right? What about weapons that are either weapons designed- that are based up there, not- That are based that shooting up, up there. there. Exactly, okay. exactly. So, and, and I can't give you chapter and verse on this, but there's any number of international National treaties that forbid putting weapons up there. The, um, the outer spaces, the outer spaces. Yeah, treaty. yeah. There's a number of conventions that, again, I'm not schooled on, but um, but yeah, there's prohibitions on putting certain weapons in space. I'm some of our sources have told us to brush up on the outer spaces treaty because it, which prohibits the nuclearization of space. Right. What would be the consequences of violating that treaty? Well, um, there's consequences for violating a treaty, which is sort of a legalistic question, you know, what yeah. are the recourses? And, you know, we have real trouble when countries um, do things like, you know, try to shoot down their own satellites or create a problem up there because the stuff that is orbiting the earth, you know, it eventually comes down, but it yeah. can be decades before it comes down. Meanwhile, you have stuff moving at, you know, whatever the number is, 25,000 miles per hour. And, you know, a little bolt moving at that speed takes out a communication satellite and pretty spectacular fashion. So as you might imagine, we spend an awful lot of time worrying about garbage circulating up there. So were you just to use an example to, you know, detonate an explosion, much less a nuclear explosion. By the way, something I learned about space is that uh, because there's no uh, atmosphere, there's no boom and there's no pressure wave. So, you know, uh, explosives that go off down here on earth are destructive because they compress a lot of atmosphere and destroy a lot of things uh -huh. that way up there. There is no atmosphere. So what you're dealing with is radiation. And for reasons I can't explain to you because I didn't do well in high school physics, um, the radiation lasts a very, very, very long time up there. So what happens when a nuclear device uh, detonates in, in outer space? If you, want to, if you want to take a satellite out with a nuclear device, uh, it doesn't. you're saying it doesn't have the same explosive? It doesn't have the same mechanical effect, kinetic effects, right? Because huh. there's no atmosphere to compress. So the matter around uh, a device, nuclear yeah. or non-nuclear, it gets 
a lot of speed and is very, very dangerous. But in a, in a nuclear explosion, the energy would all be in the form of radiation, which so, that's beats up on stuff in a very big way. Got it. Oh. Meanwhile, all of our you know GPS satellites and our communication satellites and everything else are going through that. And that's both a physical threat and a radiation threat. So yeah, this, this, the protecting stuff up there is complicated. <laughs> this is... A- all right. So, if there were a, um, if if Russia were interested in doing this, what would the president? What would the options for the president be? Were if Russia were interested in in uh, in, a, in, in a space-based uh, nuclear weapon? Yeah. Well, um, you know, uh, never having been in the executive, <laughs> I can, I you know, uh, I could just. I mean, I guess I draw an analogy um, maybe with the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? There's there's one approach, right, well, which is you go to the UN and you uh, say these guys are, you know, you go to the UN and you make it really public, and uh, you know, hypothetically, if this were about activity in space, the UN would be a pretty good venue to do that because you can't mess around in space without messing up a whole lot of people's assets, right? So one yeah. possibility would be that you just sort of name and shame, like you know. There's yeah. this thing happening up there that could put Indian, you know, Malaysian, Canadian, French, British satellites. And, yeah. You know, you hope that those folks sort of cotton on and say, stop, whatever it may be. Or even Chinese. I mean, an ally of, sure. of the, the offending country. Yeah. Sure. I mean, this is sort of the nature of space, right? I mean, you can, you know, as we're doing right now, you can put a missile on a Houthi rocket launcher without anybody else knowing about it. But anything you do in space is going to affect yeah. dozens of countries' equities up there. With respect to the war in Ukraine, the Russians have um, previously talked about the possibility of retaliating against private um, mesh network internet service providers that are helping the Ukrainians fight the Russians. They've argued that um, it's a le- it might be a legitimate target. Um, what do you think of that? So I, I, you're thinking of Starlink here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I understand the military thinking, right? So Starlink is being used to some effect by the Ukrainians. Let's think about taking out these satellites. I understand the military thinking. Strategically, that would be pretty massively escalatory, right? Because it's not Ukrainian stuff up there. Um, and, you know, if all of a sudden Russia opens the door to taking out other people's stuff, what do you think the Chinese think about that, right? Because the Chinese are obviously helping, maybe not as directly as the Russians would like, but, you know, there's stuff going in airplanes from China to Russia, right? So now all of a sudden, if the Russians are interested in breaking other people's stuff, you know, there's a lot of countries who are going to sit up and say, whoa, that's massively escalatory. You know, the Russians today are not in a position to do a lot of escalation, right? I mean, they've just suffered massive, massive losses. Um, you know, the tide has sort of turned such that they've held the line in Ukraine, but they're in a very bad way. Um, and this is, of course, why it is so important that we get Ukraine aid done, because them being in a bad way is not a permanent condition. Every day that goes by, they probably get more men, more more assets, more weaponry and stuff. So anyway, my point is that, yeah. you know, if if I were Vladimir Putin, I would every day be asking myself the question of, you know, does my action, you know, either harden the resolve of the West or does it make, you know, those countries who are helpful like China or those countries who are annoyingly neutral like India rethink their position. And then the last thing on this, um, what's what's going to happen now? 
Um, you have the, this request for the administration to declassify as much as possible on this. How do you see this playing out in the next in the de- next days and weeks? I think Chairman Turner wanted much more clarity on what uh, the executive branch's uh, options and thinking is around dealing with this particular threat, and I imagine that that's probably the subject of the meeting. Um, so we'll uh, we'll we'll see we'll see. And then, uh, are you with him on that in terms of declassifying? Oh, on the declassification, is that? There's, there's that's no, his big. That's that's the big request here, right? Yeah, I was, you know, I I was not happy with his conclusion that it should be declassified. Not because he's obviously wrong, but the decision to declassify something has everything to do, a with the strategy, but also it is intimately uh, wrapped up in if we declassify who or what gets exposed. And I know right, that the right. chairman didn't know that, so. It's a pretty brusque didn't thing know, to say. I'm sorry, didn't know what? Didn't know that. Didn't know what sources and methods might be exposed. In other words, I would always be careful about saying this should be declassified because I don't know. Let's imagine that the source is human intelligence. I'm right. making that up. Right. But let's imagine the source is human intelligence. And I say this should be declassified. And somebody says to me, if it's declassified, this guy who's a cafeteria worker in Pyongyang is right. dead. That's why you should be really careful about saying something should be declassified because you don't know what the downsides are to sources and methods. Right, right. And that's the conversation that Jake Sullivan is going to have with you guys today. Yeah, and well, and I mean, I guess I don't know that he's under any obligation to uh, to talk about whether some, you know sources and methods, and, yeah. and given that I suspect the committee is not in his good graces right now, I would understand why he might be a little bit a little bit reticent. Um, but um, you know, he does. Uh, he, I think he does have an oversight Wait. obligation to talk about what they're doing. What do you mean the committee's not in his good graces because of this? Because well, of the statement or because of 702 or what? No, 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 no. Because of, um, you know, because of the last 48 hours yeah. where the press is speculating on well, what this thing may be, where intelligence may have been yeah. exposed. I mean, if I'm a... Jake is pissed at Turner. I would be surprised if he weren't. Um, <laughs> and, and look, I mean, quite apart from... You, you just named two personalities. Quite apart from that... Yeah. It's a huge oversight issue, right? Because if senior IC professionals are thinking, uh, we really should tell Congress this, it's super sensitive, they need to know, but there's some chance that on a Tuesday business meeting, they're going to give 435 yahoos access to the information. (laughs) And literally two hours later, there's going to be stuff in the press. If I'm that senior intelligence leader, I'm like, you know, okay, I understand I have an obligation to disclose, but people could die. Anyway, you you see the tension there. Just to be just to just to clarify, the four hundred thirty-five yahoos are uh, the members of the U.S. House of Representatives. I guess I included right? myself in that number, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's enough. right. Yeah, you put the whole intelligence committee. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but not the senators; they'll be psyched. Um, all right. No, but it's a serious yeah. issue. And 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 look, I I can't prove this, but one of the things I'm really proud of uh, Chairman Turner and I also, there are three va- there are three vacancies right now. Uh, where? Oh, in the House. In the House. <laughs> Okay, 432 yahoos. I might even take that number down to, you know, 300 because uh, anyway, um, the, the the point I was going to make is that, you know, I, I we've never done a formal investigation, but there's no doubt in my mind that when the Intelligence Committee was a highly politicized sort of platform for, you know, p- pro-Trump, anti-Trump stuff, there's no yeah. question in my mind that I, the Intelligence Community leaders were thoughtful about what they should send our way. And that is not a good outcome. Right. There's much more trust now is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly.
Basel III Endgame will make it harder for consumers to buy a house or a car. It'll hurt the small businesses that rely on loans to grow, and it'll reduce savings for people with money in pension funds. Regulators propose capital requirements would take a toll on families, seniors, farmers, and small businesses. Washington, scrap Basel III Endgame and start over. Let's talk about a much simpler subject, 702. Yeah. Give us the state of play on that before I ask you about uh, why you're so uh, worried about these uh, Jim Jordan amendments. Yeah. So, I mean, you know the state of play, which is that, you know, uh, we're, we're kind of nowhere now. Uh, <laughs> we're kind of nowhere. The, the good news is that- <laughs> When does know, it expire? The NDAA extended the program through the third week of April. Okay. Um, and so we're okay. This is a program that must not be allowed to expire. You know, it is probably our premier collection program. 60% of the president's daily brief comes from 702. Hmm. Um, every moment, every hour, we are using 702 collection in Israel, Gaza, in Ukraine, uh, counter narcotics, you name it. So it must not be allowed to expire. Um, and uh, it's a hard one. Legislatively speaking, the legalities are really hard, even for lawyers, of which I am not one. Um, the technologies are hard. Uh, the equities are hard because largely, and this moves into the conversation about a probable cause warrant, but if this were a program that only collected the emails and texts or whatever of non-US nationals of foreign targets, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But it turns out you can't collect a target's email to an American without getting that American's information. Right. And just to back up so people understand, just to put uh, emphasize what you said, 702 is a, uh, well, Explain, broad, broad rush, what 702 sure. is. So, um, so not very easy to explain yeah. at a high level. Um, the and, and, and the reason why it's a particular program. Um, in the 702 program, we go to US-based service providers, folks that run emails and text businesses, and we say, give us the emails and texts for these foreigners, only foreigners. Right. That's how the program works. Why does it need a special legal standing? Because, you know, if we want to steal somebody's emails in, you know, in Brussels, we can just do that, right? right? The reason it needs That's special legal standing it, you know. is because the, the demand of the email provider happens here in the United States. That's why. So it's that simple. Now, that would all be okay if we only ever got information on foreigners. But as I said, when you get a – there's always somebody on the other side of an email, right? right? If, I, if I, I, as an American citizen – send a text to a foreigner, um, and that foreigner is then a target of 702, obviously my communications are going to be collected. Right, right. So that sort of gives you your first fact, which is- And, and there's a warrant process to go to the service provider to get that information. Uh, it's not technically a warrant, but yes. Oh, sure. Yes. They have to go to the FISA court. Yeah, it's compelled production. But yes, that's exactly right. And every year, the FISA court looks at the whole program, warts and all, because there have yeah. been some real warts, which is one of the obstacles we've had to overcome. Yep. Every year, the FISA court reauthorizes this program, often with changes, by the way, to the nature of the program. So it gets good oversight. This is one of the ironies, right? You know, This program is probably the most heavily scrutinized program we have because 
you've got, um, you know, the courts involved and, you know, people say, oh, the FISA court, these are like shadowy judges. No, they're not. They're regular federal judges who, you know, agree to join the FISA court for a, a, a period of time. So it gets scrutinized by the judges. It gets scrutinized by internal executive branch people, inspector generals, the attorney general, and it gets scrutinized by me. Um, by the, So it has scrutiny from all three branches of government, which is one of the reasons that it is puzzling that it's so controversial. Well, it, I mean, it's controversial, especially among some conservatives, because there was clear abuse by the FBI in obtaining FISA warrants during one of the Russia investigations. Well, here's the irony. And it's just, it sort of blows my mind. I mean, the Carter Page story is well told and yeah. well understood. And yes, the affidavits that were filed for those FISA warrants were not adequate. That was not 702. <laughs> you know, now that seems to get lost uh, in the yeah. in the conversation. But the whole the abuses were not 702. Yeah. If you want to criticize 702, which again it's a program with some warts on it, you say, oh my gosh, the FBI has been really sloppy around how they did U.S. person queries. That is true. Yeah. Now that of course gets the Jim Jordans of the world pretty ginned up too. And that yeah. Well, let's, and, and, let's talk about that. You know, that and as yeah. it should. I don't mean to sound condescending about that. It, you know, any abuse is not okay. But anyway, the whole Carter Page thing, the whole Russia investigation had nothing to do with 702. Fair point. It had to do with the FISA court, which also right. oversees 702. And it titled yeah. whatever it was, the non-702 collection in FISA. Yeah. Got it. So Jake Sullivan, before the controversy we were talking about in the earlier part of this conversation, was up on the Hill briefing about 702. Um, what's the administration – tell us about that meeting and, and what the administration's view is right now. <laughs> that was this. the other – we didn't cover that. That was the other beautiful moment of yesterday, right? Just as the entire, you know, capital has decided that the aliens are landing with nuclear weapons and we all need to sell our belongings and move to Montana, Avril Haines and, and, and the national security advisors are going into Hipsy. And, and I, I made a point of telling people this has nothing to do with what Turner's been on about it. Oh, everything. right. So they're coming up to the Hill, walking in. At the very moment, the reporters are yeah. – you know, Staking you guys out. on the ground. Here's the director of national intelligence, the national security advisor. And anyway, yeah, it couldn't have been couldn't have been worse timing. Well, maybe Turner knew that was going to happen. Well, all right, okay, whatever you think, whatever you think, um, <laughs> Ryan. But um, anyway, so back to seven hundred two. Um, well, what was? Tell us about that briefing. What's their? What they say? Let me distill a two hour meeting down to yeah. to a couple sentences. They said a warrant to query U.S. person information is not doable. And the reason it's not doable, you're hearing this from a, a, a non-lawyer, is that probable cause is a standard that says we have evidence that a crime has been committed. Very rarely is that true with a US person query. And just to back up a little bit, let me try and explain this and tell me if I've got this right. You you go to the data uh, providers, you, you get the communications on this foreign target, right? right? That gets put into some database um, that right. sits where FB, at the FBI at the um, or it depends. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that's All classified right. detail. Okay. <laughs> it sits with the U.S. government. All right, <laughs> and then um, in other words, you're not allowed to just uh, read through all, all that that database. No, it has to be queried. Right. All right, and the change, the amendment that the Jim Jordans of the world want, but also some liberals like Jer Jerry Nadler is that they want the in intelligence community to go and get a warrant every time that that database is queried or every time it's queried uh, with some implication for an American citizen? The latter. The latter. Okay. Only when it is a, what is okay. known as a U.S. person query. Got it. 
Got it. So that's how it's defined. Right. And okay. and two okay. things to say about- And so the administration came up yesterday and said, and I know you agree with them on this, that's unworkable. Right. Okay. Right. Why? Um, and it's unworkable. Let's, let me walk you through okay. two examples. Um, and let me use myself here. <laughs> um, you know, because famously there was a member of Congress who who got queried here. Uh, but let me use myself in a Wait, hypothetical. Remind yeah. us of what that. What, what, it was. Um, uh, damn it, uh, LaHood. It was LaHood. Yeah, no, he he made this public, so so we're not we're not in dangerous territory. But so again, two examples here, and this will illustrate why a probable cause warrant doesn't work. Okay. Um, uh, a bunch of Chinese. I, I had dinner with the Chinese um, ambassador uh, last week. Okay. Um, now, uh, the NSA, through its regular collection, picks up all kinds of intelligence, uh, Chinese intelligence officers, Jim Himes, Jim Himes, talking about Jim Himes. They have one, I think, legitimate worry and another worry that I would like to believe is not legitimate. The legitimate worry is maybe they're planning some kind of operation, right? Maybe when I was at the Chinese uh, ambassador's residence, they stuck a bug in my briefcase or whatever. Yeah. Um, but their Chinese intelligence agents are talking about Jim Himes, right? They want to know why to protect me. Now, by the way, it could be terrorists talking about Jim Himes because they want to kidnap me. That's known as a defensive query. Now, I'm not suspected of any crime whatsoever. So there is no probable cause. Right. So in the world of Jerry Nadler and Jim Jordan, if Chinese intelligence agents or Yemeni terrorists are talking a lot about Jim Himes, they don't get the query to find out why. Now, I said Unless there were two- Unless they go and get a warrant. Unless, it, but, but again, the warrant has a probable cause standard. And, the, and probable cause means judge- You're suspected of a crime. Right. Judge, we believe this is- Look, if, if they right. see me handing packets of fentanyl out, you know, they'll go to the judge and yeah. say, we saw him handing out packets. We have probable cause to believe that if we search Himes' apartment, we're going to find evidence of a crime. That's what probable cause means. Right. Right. But if they're defending me- there's obviously no way to provide probable cause. Right. Now, let's take the other example. That's called a defensive query, by the way. And there's just no way to generate probable cause. Got the it. other thing is maybe they think I'm in league with the Chinese. Now, I'd like to believe that that's not what they think. But obviously, you know, let, maybe there's a better example where, you know, known Pakistani terrorists are talking to some dude in L.A. Yeah. Right. Now, it could be innocent. Could be the guy's cousin. Or right. it could not. 9-11 could right. not be innocent. Right. And so... But even there, where a known terrorist is sending an email to a person in L.A., that doesn't meet the probable right. cause standard. Right. So, and I want to be super clear about this. Could we put more judicial review on that process? We could. In fact, we've thought a lot about how you might do that. Right. And the, if, the, if the key is just that they want to go and get the court sign off, why the st the, for your first example, you can just change the, the, sta the, the standard. If, you could, there are other standards. So okay. you could go to a judge and have to make the case that the query is likely to produce important national intelligence information. Okay. That would work. But yeah, let's, just stick with, you got, yeah. let's just stick with where we yeah. are here. Yeah. This all started with a conversation about the meeting with J Jake Sullivan. So I, th I yeah. think I've explained it. And, you know, Jake and Avril and everybody, the lawyers from the are explaining that. And I don't want to put, I don't want to try to climb inside Jim Jordan and Jerry Nadler's head, but they, their attitude is, we want a probable cause warrant. And Jake Sullivan says, but that shuts the program down. And that's a weird impasse to be And just at. be clear, this was, uh, they were, both sides of this debate were in that meeting. What do you mean both sides? In other words, the Nadler, was it just uh, the, the Intel Committee? There were about or? 60 Democrats in there, Got some it. of whom I think Got were it. very sympathetic to their arguments, some of whom were really not sympathetic to their arguments. Got it. So, so what was um, the pushback? But the, I mean, the ACLU wasn't in the meeting, right? Um, so 
again, when people understand that the probable cause standard simply doesn't work, I think they get it. Yeah. Um, it's frustrating to me that there are leaders of committees who hear that but don't grapple with it, to my estimation. Especially, let me give you another example that gets a little bit um, esoteric, but the PCLOB, the President's Civil Liberties Oversight Board, they also proposed a warrant, but a much more restricted warrant. This was the board that was set up after the Snowden uh, right. revelations by the right. Obama administration. Right. So okay. even the PCLOB, which the Republican members of the PCLOB really objected to the recommendations of the PCLOB, said totally unnecessary, really wrongheaded. I'm not going to get into the merits of who was right. But the PCLOB proposed a warrant that was much more permissive than the amendment that was to be offered. Got it. That would that, that would, would be probable cause for all U.S. person queries. Wait, and that so and that proposal would address the concerns that you're laying out here, and that that Sullivan is concerned about the PCLOB proposal. Yeah. It would yeah. be much more doable yeah. because, and, and, and this gets pretty esoteric, pretty esoteric. But you make a U.S. person query. This is interesting. Ninety eight percent of those queries return no information. So the PCLOB proposed that you would only require a warrant for those 2% of the cases where there was information before you could look at that information. Got it. You can do the query, but if you get a hit- you Then can... you need a warrant. Now, that, now no we're hits. in the realm of the reasonable, right? No, and no hit, you don't have to worry No about hit, it. no warrant, right? And if you think about it, if what you really care about yeah. is the civil liberties and the privacy of, the, of Americans, in some senses, the PCLOB warrant is, is, more, is more pointed because it protects people who actually have information in the database. Got it. But that's not what we were talking about yesterday, and that's why it was so frustrating. Got it. Okay. Quickly on the the other amendment that is uh, the that you're concerned about, the um, advocates of that amendment say that um, the intelligence agencies are getting around the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution by buying these large uh, private uh, databases. Um, Correct me if I've got that. Uh, yeah, the wrong. Fourth Amendment is not for sale. Amendment. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. What's the what, explain that and what your view and the administration's view is on this? Yeah. So, on the previous conversation about a yeah. probable cause warrant, as you can sense, I sort of want to light myself on fire because there's just a logical problem with people who say we should have it. Okay. I have a very different view of the Fourth Amendment as not for sale amendment, which is I think it's a hugely worthy undertaking. Meaning, yeah. You know, the Department of Defense, law enforcement at every level, um, and the intelligence community is buying uh, commercially available data. I guess this is what we do on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is. They're buying that stuff just yeah. the way you and I could buy it. And oh, by the way, just the way the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians can buy it. Hmm. And I think it's a hugely worthy conversation. But I feel adamantly, and this is what, by the way, took down the 702 consideration yesterday. I feel really adamantly that we have that conversation including the committees that should weigh in on it, not just judiciary, but energy and commerce and intelligence. And then let's legislate. But please, please, please don't take something that has nothing to do with 702. So the original idea, if I've got this right, was that the House would handle 702. You guys would work out some of these disagreements and that would uh, uh, then it would go over to the Senate. doesn't seem like that's, that uh, plan is, uh, is working. Is it better for the Senate to, uh, do, to go first? Well, so it feels like you ask a very big question here, right? Because if 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 the House uses regular order, we can't tie our shoes. We can't get out of bed in the morning. So we have two mechanisms to get things done. Passing things under suspension of the rules, which, by the way, Mr. Speaker, by definition means these things are going to be bipartisan, right? Two-thirds of the Congress means. So we either pass 
Would we don't use the rules committee. Would 702 pass I don't under suspension? So. I don't think so. No. I think we would get an outcome that I would support in the majority, but I don't think we get to two thirds. Yeah. Especially, by the way, with all of that data broker stuff, Fourth Amendment is not for sale stuff. Yeah. So, so it feels to me like, and again, now I'm sort of speculating about the box that the speaker is in. We either pass things under suspension of the rules because we can't ever, the Republicans can't get a rule passed. Or we just take what the Senate sends us, right. which the speaker has repeatedly said no to on immigration and border, on the Russia-Israel deal. But, you know, at some point, at some point, here's what happened yesterday. This, here's why we don't have a 702 bill today. There were a number of Republicans who said if the um, data broker amendment is in the bill, we will take down the rule. And another group said, if it is out of the bill, we will take down the rule. So they couldn't pass a rule. And by the way, that's going to happen on every piece of legislation that comes before us. Yeah. So we either do things under suspension, which is by definition bipartisan, or we just end up eating whatever the Senate sends us until the speaker figures out how to handle his uh, raucous caucus. <laughs> well, good luck waiting for that. So what's the process we recommend for, the, for 702? Like, Do you have any faith that this is going to be solved or are they going to need another extension past April? I would have liked to have seen the House work its will yesterday. Uh, I think we could have defeated the um, probable cause amendment and passed a bill. I don't know how it would have come out with the data broker thing, but that wouldn't have been the last word, right? There would have been a Senate bill. There would have been a conference. We would have had other bites at the apple. Today, we have nothing. And that makes me very sad because we just can't put the existence of this program at risk. Final thing on this. I'm sure you've talked to Johnson about 702. Do you feel like he gets it and understands how important this program is? I think he does. Um, I've heard him say that. I've heard him say that he supports aid to Ukraine. I've heard him say that he supports aid to Israel. What Johnson thinks or feels is not relevant to the dysfunctionality of the House. Yeah. It's a math problem. Yeah. you know. Um, and so yeah, I do think he's, not, he's a bright guy. Um, do you think, now this is really the final issue here, do you think there's a faction on either the left or the right that would have no problem with 702 expiring? In the House? Yeah. it's. I'd like to believe it's a tiny faction because that's dangerous. Yeah. But look, we have a tiny faction in the House that is openly rooting for Vladimir Putin. So <laughs> the question that you just asked is the answer to that question is always yes. Um, and, and so, yes, of course there would be. Again, it's, yeah. it's sad, right? I mean, I would like to believe that all 435 members are statesmanlike in their approach to this thing. Turns out that's not true. <laughs> um Thank you very much for this <laughs> conversation. You, Learned a lot. Really appreciate it. Pleasure yeah. to be with you. I don't think you broke any uh, classification rules. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll see if I get dragged out in handcuffs. Next <laughs> week. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. You can email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>